the name of this podcast is called Read a Book. And the book we are reading is called The War on Kids, How American Juvenile Justice Lost His Way by Kara H. Drennan. Reading Chapter 2, Crime as a Child's Destiny. When the trial court judge sentenced Terrence to life without parole in 2006, he seemed mystified while Terrence threw his life away by violating the terms of his probation. The judge made statements suggesting that Terrence had been given every opportunity in life to be a productive member of society and to make good choices for himself. He said that Terrence had quite a family structure and a lot of people who wanted to try and help him get his life turned around. In fact, nothing could have been further from the truth. Terrence was born into a world of poverty, drugs, and violence. Social science tells us that some children are virtually destined for criminal activity because of either immutable characteristics or environmental factors over which they have no control. And Terrence was one of those kids. This does not mean that Terrence or other juveniles like him who violate the law are absolved of responsibility for their actions. Rather, it tells us that social intervention is required far sooner and in a far different manner than what the criminal justice system meets out. This chapter proceeds in two parts. Part A describes Terrence's childhood and the variables in his youth that made his criminal conduct readily understandable, if not virtually inescapable, contrary to the sentencing judge said in 2006. Part B situates Terrence's experience in the larger context of social science research. This research demonstrates that certain children, namely poor kids, minority kids, kids who have an incarcerated parent, and kids who witness violence in the home are statistically more likely to end up in the adult criminal justice system. If we are to improve the odds for these kids, we must do more than tinker with what, what that system when they finally get there. The name of this podcast is called Read a Book, and the book we are reading is called The War on Kids, How American Juvenile Justice Lost His Way by Kara H. Drennan. Continuing Chapter 2, Section A, Inheriting Crime. Unlike the initial trial court judge who sentenced Terrence, the judge who resentenced Terrence in 2012 after his Supreme Court victory had the benefit of knowledge. The resentencing judge heard testimony both written and oral from a mitigation specialist who had done extensive research on Terrence's childhood, his education, his family, and the social context in which he was raised. The picture she paints is hard to stomach. Terrence was born into a family legacy of poverty, substance abuse, and violence. His mother, Mary Graham, grew up in a home much like the one she would later create for her own sons. Terrence's maternal grandmother, Mary Alice, was pregnant at 12 and went on to have five children, four sons and Mary Graham. Mary Alice abused her children physically and verbally. She regularly said to Mary as she beat her, I'm going to break your back open. Mary Graham would later repeat the same threat while inflicting similar beatings on Terrence and his brothers. Mary Alice's four sons, Terrence's uncle, have all served time in the Florida Department of Corrections. Mary Alice died at the age of 44, addicted to drugs. Terrence's mother, Mary Graham, and his father, Harry Jones, met when Mary was 22. Mary Graham was two, has two sons with Harry Jones, Travis and Terrence. Mary's two younger sons, Michael and Deontay, each have different fathers, men whom Mary men, met after Harry moved out when Terrence was six. Harry Jones, while he left the home when Terrence was still young, is the only father figure Terrence ever had. 
when they were first together, Harry introduced Mary to crack cocaine, and crack then dominated the balance of their life together. When Mary denies having used crack during her pregnancy with Terrence, but family members recall her having done so, social service records indicate that she had been addicted to drugs before Terrence's birth and that he exhibited symptoms of drug exposure at birth. In addition to crack cocaine, Mary also used marijuana and alcohol excessively during Terrence's childhood. Terrence's mother and father allowed others to get high in their apartment in order to fund their own drug habits. Users who smoked crack in the home were required to pay the house lady by supplying Mary with drugs. Mary recalls that whenever she was home, she was hot, and she has no recollection of what her children were doing with. Terrence and his older brother recall being sent out of the house when they were young boys because the mother and father, as well as other drug users, were getting high and didn't want to listen to the sound of children. The boys were also scared of their parents when they were high because they behaved in strange and frightening ways and looked like two mutes with large bug eyes. Sometimes the boys played in parking lots until late at night or until the drugs ran out. At times, they would bang on the apartment door, begging to come back home. Other times, they saw sanctuary in a neighbor's home. While Mary stopped using drugs when Terrence was still in grade school, Terrence's father remained addicted to this day. Poverty was another central theme of Terrence's childhood. Terrence says he never saw someone go to work. That where he grew up, you either smoked crack or sold crack. His mother and father did, at times, hold down low-skill jobs. Mary was a maid and a grocery store employee, while Harry was a trained carpenter but rarely employed. Harry received disability payments when Terrence was young, and he stopped working altogether in 1996. Because of their drug addiction and underemployment, there was little money for basics such as housing, food, clothing, and utilities. Mary's aunt, Jean, who functioned as a grandmother to Terrence, says that when Mary did have an income, it was to use to finance her drug habit, not support her children. By the time Terrence was 13, he and his family had lived in nine different homes, all of which were Section 8 subsidized housing. Hunger was a constant struggle. Terrence reports that he was sometimes called Jean when hunger was unbearable. Mary was enraged when she found out the boys had done that, so they often went days without food before calling their grandmother. They only called when they got too hungry to wait another day. The name of this podcast is called Read a Book, and we are reading The War on Kids, How American Juvenile Justice Lost Its Way by Kara H. Drennan, continuing Section A from Chapter 2. Mary recalls having her utilities cut off for non-payment. Sometimes when that happened, Terrence's older brother, Travis had to connect a garden hose to the neighbor's house so they could bathe, wash dishes, and have a drink of water. Florida Department of Children and Families files from 1989 indicate that at the time when Terrence was three, Mary was on crack. There was no electricity in the apartment and the children were poorly nourished. DCF contemplated removing the children from Mary's custody at the time because there was no food in the home, but no such action was taken. In addition to addiction and poverty, abuse permeated Terrence's childhood. Terrence's mother repeatedly told him that she was sorry she'd ever given birth to him, that he was a motherfucker and a son of a bitch, and that he would amount to nothing. Mary also physically beat Terrence from the age of two, according to Jean. Jean says that Mary beat all of her sons, but that she was harsher with Terrence and Michael. She beat them with belts and, as Terrence recalls, with cords, or whatever was handy at the moment, when her rage erupted. She beat them all over their bodies, including on their heads and genitals, leaving welts and bruises. 
Harry occasionally beat the children, but he was less violent of the two parents. In fact, Harry sometimes fought with Mary trying to defend the children from her beatings. DCF files indicate that the agency was aware of this physical abuse, but again, no action was taken. Terence's educational experience was chaotic and nomadic as the rest of his life. Because they moved homes often, Terence was switching schools just as frequently. By ninth grade, he had attended nine schools. Terence was a quiet child, then he learned to internalize much of the physical and verbal abuse he suffered. Regarding his mother's beatings, he told Jean, let her beat me. I'll take myself out of my body. And perhaps he did, but he suffered the consequences of low self-esteem and chronic depression. By second grade, Terence had been identified as a slow learner and diagnosed with ADHD. He was never treated with prescription medication because his mother did not allow it. Terrence was in special education classes throughout elementary school. He never completed high school, but he earned his GED in prison. By the time he was in fourth grade, Terrence ceded to the world of drugs and lawlessness into which he had been born. He began drinking alcohol that year and reports that he would get drunk at least four times a week. Starting at the age of 13, Terrence smoked marijuana and drank alcohol daily until he was incarcerated in 2004. In 2003, when he would have been in 10th grade, Terrence ran away from home, dropped out of school, and was living either in a car with various friends. Those friends went on to become his co-defendants in the barbecue restaurant robbery later that year. DCF reports on Terrence and his brother date back when Terrence was three years old. Those reports document neglect, hunger, physical, and verbal abuse, an environment of drug abuse and abject poverty. The reports document that Mary sold her food stamps to buy drugs, that she left the sons unintended for an extended period of time, that she locked the children out of the house while she smoked crack, and that she physically beat her children with belt buckles. While Mary was required to participate in the outpatient drug rehabilitation program, at one point the records revealed no formal steps to remove Terrence and his brothers from her custody. Sadly, as the next part of this chapter demonstrates, statistically speaking, Terrence was on a trajectory toward crime from almost birth. The name of this podcast is called Read a Book, and the book we are reading is The War on Kids, How American Juvenile Justice Lost His Way by Kara H. Drennan, continuing Chapter 2, Section B, The Research Beyond Terrence. It is tempting to hear the horrific details of Terrence's childhood and conclude that his case is an outlier, that few children in this country endure the poverty, violence, and neglect that he did. Unfortunately, his childhood experience is far too common, and research tells us it is a toxic environment from which few kids can ever extricate themselves. In this part of the chapter, I address the ways in which race, poverty, exposure to violence in the home, and having an incarcerated parent affects the likelihood of criminal conduct. Poverty. 80% of adults prosecuted for crime in this country are poor, so it is no surprise that poverty is an equally damning reality for children and may ultimately usher them into the criminal justice system. Poverty is an everyday reality for many children in America. Almost a quarter of all children in this country live in families with incomes below the poverty line, defined as 24000 for a family of four among 35 industrialized countries. The United States has the second highest child poverty rate, despite the fact that we have the largest economy in the world. Poverty threatens a child well-being in a number of ways. 
To begin, social scientists have demonstrated that childhood poverty hinders social, emotional, and physical development. Childhood poverty is linked with a host of interrelated dynamics, all of which make a healthy childhood nearly impossible. Poor housing and homelessness, persistent hunger and malnutrition, inadequate health care, and a lack of quality child care and educational resources. More specifically, Children in poverty are more likely to have a low birth weight to experience chronic health problems such as asthma, anemia, and pneumonia, to be exposed to environmental hazards such as lead paint and toxic waste, and to have little access to healthy foods and recreation space, often resulting in childhood obesity. Children who are hungry, sleeping in cars, suffer from chronic, untreated asthma, and living amidst the ambient stress of poverty are hindered in their physical and emotional growth. This goes without saying. The stress on development manifests itself on both a short and long-term basis. Researchers at the Center of Poverty Studies at the University of California, Davis recently demonstrated the risk associated with low maternal education, poverty, and maternal depression. Specifically, mothers with lower household incomes and lower levels of education were more likely to be negative in their play interactions with their children. The children, in turn, were less capable of understanding emotions, both their own and others. And as the study demonstrates, emotional understanding in early childhood predicts later not accomplished with social norms and expectations. This study finds confirmation in statements of the APA. APA research indicates that children in poverty that are at increased for emotional and behavioral problems such as impulsiveness, aggression, ADHD, and peer conflict. At the same time, children in poverty have a higher risk for emotional problems such as anxiety, depression, and low self-esteem. More often than not, the adult parents living in poverty are experiencing similar emotional problems, and this could lead to poor parenting choices which only exacerbate the child's emotional problem. A child cannot thrive in a school setting when she is hungry, lacking consistent childcare, potentially moving homes, and coping with parental stress. And research bears this out low household income correlates with poor performance in school. Once again, social science tells us that the instability and stress associated with poverty can hinder a healthy childhood attachment and emotional growth. A child who enters the school system with a host of emotional, social, and physical challenges faces an uphill academic battle. On top of the limited range of emotional skills, children raised in poverty endure chronic stress, and this stress can inhibit their learning capacity. As Jensen explains, exposure to chronic or acute stress is hardwired into children's developing brains, creating a devastating cumulative effect. Compared with a healthy neuron, a stressed neuron generates a weaker signal, handles less blood flow, processes less oxygen, and extends fewer connective branches to nearby cells. The prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, crucial for learning, cognitive, cognition, and working memory are the areas of the brain's most effective cortisol, the so-called stress hormone. Experiments have demonstrated that exposure to chronic and acute stress actually shrinks neurons in the brain's frontal lobes, an area that includes the prefrontal context and is responsible for such functions as making judgments, planning, and regulating impulsivity. It can modify and impair the hippocampus in ways that reduce learning capacity. The name of this podcast is called Read a Book. And the book we are reading is called The War on Kids. How American Juvenile Justice Lost His Way by Kara H. Drennan. Continuing section B from chapter 2. Race. To begin, 
More than 2 million adults and children are incarcerated in this country, and African Americans make up nearly half of the population. Together, African Americans and Hispanics comprise almost 60% of the nation's prisoners, despite the fact that these two groups make up only 25% of the population. As of 2001, one in six black men have been incarcerated, and if current trends continue, one in three black males born today can expect to spend some time in prison. As Professor Alexander explains in the new Jim Crow, America's criminal justice policies have decimated entire communities, and black men have paid the highest price. How did this happen? Professor Alexander argues that we have replaced the system of slavery and its legacy of Jim Crow laws with a new method of social control of African Americans, incarceration. Whether one accepts her thesis or not, it is undeniable that at every stage in the criminal justice system, race matters. Blacks and Hispanics in this country are overrepresented at every juncture. For many, their first disciplinary or law enforcement encounter happens in a school setting, and race matters in school. A new report by the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania found that black students are suspended and expelled at rates far higher than white students. The Smith-Harper report found that in the 2011-2012 academic year, 1.2 million black students were suspended from K-12 to public schools. 55% of these suspensions took place in 13 states in the South. The Smith-Harper report closely examined those 13 states and found that while blacks were 24% of students in the school districts analyzed, they were suspended and expelled at disproportionately high rates across districts. For example, in 743 districts in the South, black students were 50% or more of the students suspended from public schools. In 84 districts, 100% of suspended students were black. Similarly, in 484 districts, black students were 50% or more of the students who were expelled from schools. In 181 districts, 100% of expelled students were black. The report concludes that there is an explicit racial bias in school discipline, just as others have found that there is explicit racial bias in criminal justice scenarios. Not only do expelled and suspended students miss critical time in the classroom, but also studies have shown that these students are more likely to have later contact with the juvenile justice system than similar students who are not removed from school. Blacks and Hispanics also experience disproportionately high rates of law enforcement encounters, whether or not those encounters result in arrest or criminal charges. A traffic stop is the most common reason a person interacts with a police officer, and studies have consistently shown that racial minorities, especially black males, are stopped for traffic infractions at a disproportionately high rate. It is hard to, t to tease out racial bias or profiling in the work of law enforcement. But one recent compilation of data by the New York Times confirms that the bias is there, even if implicitly. In seven states required to report traffic stop information, Connecticut, Illinois, Maryland, Missouri, Nebraska, North Carolina, and Rhode Island, police are more likely to pull over black drivers than white ones as a function of the driving population. The Times focused on Greensboro, North Carolina because of its robust data, and it analyzed tens of thousands of traffic stops made by hundreds of officers since 2010 in the city. While blacks made up 39% of Greensboro driving age population, they consisted of 54% of drivers pulled over since 2010. Even more troubling than the rate of stops is the encounter between police and black drivers once this stops happens. 
Police use their discretion to search black drivers or their cars more than twice as often as white motorists. Even though they found drugs and weapons specifically, significantly more often when the drivers was white, officers are more likely to stop black drivers for no discernible reason. And they were more likely to use force if the driver was black, even when they did not encounter physical resistance. Federal government statistics confirmed that even when whites and blacks are stopped at approximately the same rate, black drivers are about three times as likely as white drivers and about two times as likely as Hispanic drivers to be searched during a traffic stop. The danger of driving while black is also documented that there is now the DWB Act.